This is Viva La Tellers, the official podcast of the KSU Tellers. The KSU Tellers are a student storytelling troupe housed in the Department of Theater and Performance Studies at Kennesaw State University, just north of Atlanta. Every episode features stories from our students. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Parrott, Associate Professor in the Department of Theater and Performance Studies at KSU and Director of the KSU Tellers. On some level, all our student stories are coming-of-age stories because, well, frankly, that's all they've really ever done. But all stories, personal or otherwise, address the big question. What is it like to be a person? So often our own lives are opaque to us, but storytelling helps us order our lives and make sense of our experiences. This first story, by Jacob Segura, is about breaking out of those small, confining conceptions of ourselves. This is El Baño Grande. There I was, sitting in a beautiful room, and even better, I had my own little space in this beautiful room. <laughs> I was king in here. I gazed out at my fortress, the metal walls that were a bit farther than shoulder length apart from where I sat. I lovingly looked down at the tile floors that decorated, embellished really, the rest of the room. I sat comfortably upon... My ivory throne. Okay, I was in a public bathroom, okay? But no, I, I wasn't just dumping a stump, growing a tail, doing my business, or dropping the kids off at the pool even. Oh, no, 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 no. I was making waves in the pool of academia. I like to think that I'm a pretty good student. I mean, somehow I'm a senior and I still have a 4.0 GPA. I don't mean that to brag or anything either. In fact, I would say that having a 4.0 is kind of suffocating. There's this constant weight like a ball and chain that keeps me down. Terrible students have it easy. They don't have to worry about any of this kind of stuff. Because when you have a 4.0, you actually have something to lose. It didn't help that I live in the giant shadow that my mom cast for me. She graduated high school with a 4.0, and so did I. She graduated in college with a 4.0, so of course it made sense that I would carry on the tradition. That really starts to wear you down over time, though. You, you get caught in this monotony of waking up, going to class, studying, eating sometimes, going to sleep, doing the same thing as every other student, but somehow better. It's just so hard. But <laughs> in all seriousness... Sometimes, whenever I can, I like to kind of cut loose because of that pressure. It was my first semester of college, and my good friend Ben and I had signed up for a Spanish class together. We were new, green, and completely unsure of ourselves, so we often relied on each other to keep up with the expectations of a college class. Now, let me tell you about Ben. I've known Ben for about 13 years now, and in some ways, he's kind of the yin to my yang. I'm loud and abrasive and kind of talk a bit too much sometimes, but my friend is a lot more reserved and laid back, and he's very much a quality over quantity kind of guy when it comes to humor. When he says something funny, it's really funny. So one day we're in Spanish class, and the professor handed out sheets of paper that had identical floor plans of a house on both sides. On one side, we had to fill out our floor plan with various Spanish words for rooms, El salón, el patio, el baño, la cocina, stuff like that. On the other side, we had to partner up with somebody. I picked Ben, of course, and we had to describe the layout of their house in Spanish and fill it out. 
Now, I don't think Ben was feeling it this particular day, though, because when it got time for him to describe his house, he simply said, Jacob, mi baño es grande. And I said, ¿qué? Mi baño es grande. So I pointed to the largest room in the house. That made sense, you know, and he shook his head. No, mi baño es muy grande. And I looked at Ben, and I looked at his blank floor plan, and it dawned on me. The whole house was the bathroom. Ben was a genius. <laughs> sure, he was clearly phoning it in right now, but who cares? He was changing the face of architecture. Here we were, two worldly, highly intelligent college men, giggling like 12-year-olds about a house being a bathroom. We had a good laugh about it after class, too. And that seemed to be the end of El Baño Grande. Until later in the semester. It was getting close to finals, and we had to do a video project, you know, to demonstrate fluency or some mierda like that. So I assembled it. The perfect film crew. I had me, I got Ben, we got a friend to record for us, and then there was that guy. You know, that guy in your group projects who's just kind of there for the grade. Yeah, that guy, he was there. There were several options for the video, though. Most of them were boring, but one of them really stuck out. A review of a fictional restaurant. Sure. So off we went to brainstorm on our little script. Ben and I decided we wanted to do a diners, drive-ins, and dives style video where I would play Guy Fieri, but Spanish. So I would play Hombre Fieri, which technically means something like Man Fieri, but whatever, just go with it, it's fine. We all got the costume pieces together, including the iconic flame shirt and wig that looked enough like frosted tips for what we wanted. So now all that was left for us to do was to think of a restaurant. Something good. Something fun. Something to really mix things up. So, when Ben turned to me and asked, What if Hombre Fieri ate at El Baño Grande? I said, See. Sí. We needed a bathroom, though. And our bathrooms at our houses and stuff were, were much too small for the big bathroom. So we thought outside the box a little bit. The bathroom on the third floor of the student center on campus. Perfect. Finally, next thing we knew, it was filming day. The other guy in our group showed up, which frankly surprised Ben and me a little bit. We handed him the script, which of course is the first time he'd ever seen it. And off to work we went. Most of the filming was pretty straightforward. It was just a bunch of cringy and goofy scenes with jump cuts and terrible acting. But the real piece de resistance, which is French, not Spanish, I know, just go with it, were the dishes. Of course a restaurant had to have signature meals, and El Baño Grande couldn't be an exception. Ben brought food that he had crudely shoved in his backpack, which normally would have been fine, but he put it there in the morning and it was the evening, so I was mildly concerned. But that didn't really matter because we had the other guy who we cast as the chef to prepare the meals properly. The chef was a pretty low-effort gig overall, but it also was no laughing matter. The food we bought was gourmet stuff. Strawberries, celery, ramen, some really disgusting on-the-border queso in a jar. We had it all. So we had that guy put food on a napkin on the bathroom counter. That was, you know, his kitchen space. And he laid out the queso, and then the strawberries, and then the other ingredients, 
and mashed them together with his bare hands. There was a nauseating squish, and it was about as good as it sounds. And as I sat down to eat on the toilet, the ivory throne, you know, I was thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? And then again, when random people kept walking in to use the bathroom while we filmed, I thought, oh my God, what are we doing? I was eating food in a bathroom. In a way, though, I guess that was kind of cool because that means I was a performance artist even before I declared my theater major. Finally, after a lot of gagging and retching and several bathroom breaks from people who weren't even involved in the filming, we had a finished product that was ready to be edited and premiered on the red carpet of the completely uncarpeted Spanish classroom. Ben and I walked into the classroom snickering like schoolboys as we took our seats, followed by the other guy who I think by this point realized he'd gone in quite a bit too deep for that freebie grade. That didn't matter anymore though because now it was showtime. Because there were several group videos to show though, we were third out of fourth in line to be shown, which was fortunate for the others because I sure wouldn't want to follow us up. Sorry video number four. But it was unfortunate for my nerves. As the other painfully boring videos played, my mind started to race. W wait a minute. What if they hate it? Oh, God, what if I embarrass myself for nothing and I get a bad grade? What, what if the professor doesn't think we're taking this seriously and sees us as stupid or immature? Finally, though, the video actually started. There was a moment of silence in the room as the video began, with the camera focused on the floor. But... As the camera suddenly began to pan up, revealing a sign on a bathroom door reading El Baño Grande, the classroom filled with laughter. And here we were, a classroom full of highly educated, highly intelligent college students giggling like 12-year-olds at a big bathroom. The mood suddenly went from pen-drop silence to huge laughter from the students and my professor, which lasted well until the end of the six minutes of video. And finally, to top it all off, the class legitimately gave us a standing ovation. Somehow, we killed this project. Sorry not sorry, video number four. At the end of the class, we got an overwhelmingly positive reception. People hugged me, shook my hand, high-fived me, and everything in between. Some people even jokingly apologized that I had to endure eating food in a bathroom, which didn't really make sense. I made my bed when I decided I wanted to screw around and make something fun with a friend for a grade. And when the grades for the video came in, Ben texted the Baño Grande group chat to let us know. Ben got a 98, the other guy got a 80, and I got a 100. And sometimes when I look back on that time in El Baño Grande, I think about what one of my classmates said to another on the way out. It was something along the lines of, he ate food in a bathroom. Do you know how unsanitary that is? And all I can think now is, yeah, you're damn right I do. Ella Height is a cinephile, and this story is about her love of movies as she looks backward and imagines forward all at once. This is Ella Height and To Stand. Did you know that in 2010, Catherine Bigelow was nominated for Best Director at the Oscars for her movie The Hurt Locker? And did you know she was going up against her ex-husband, James Cameron, who was nominated for Avatar?
you know, the movie that made all this money and has its own little land at Disney World and is going to have millions and millions of sequels, but nobody knows a single Pringle thing about it? Yeah, that movie. Well, of course, she wins the award, she kicks her ex-husband's ass, and she goes down in history as the first woman to ever win Best Director at the Oscars. You know what I was doing in 2010? Being a burglar? Well, I only stole one thing, and I technically only broke into one house. Well, I didn't really break in, more like I infiltrated their premises. Okay, you see, my mom wrote a book, and a bunch of rich white boomers that lived in the Kenny Loggins part of Atlanta loved her book and wanted her to come speak at their rich white boomer book club. So my mom, being poor, couldn't afford a babysitter, so I had to go with her, and they didn't want me there. So, being the unwelcomed guest, they put me in the entertainment room. The room was on the fifth floor of the mansion, and it overlooked this Gatsby-esque pool in the backyard, and there was this flat-screen TV that was blasting Shark Boy and Lava Girl, and this wall of DVDs, and that's when I saw it. The golden edition of Alice in Wonderland, still in the plastic wrap. I tried to keep my mind off of it and just focus on Taylor Lautner, but I couldn't help but think about all that beautiful, beautiful bonus features and the delicious commentary. And just like Kronk in The Emperor's New Groove, a devil and an angel appeared on my shoulder. Ella, what are you thinking? You can't steal this. Do it. Do it, Ella. Take it. Ella, no, you can't. It's illegal. Take it. Take it. Snatch it from the shelf. It's still in the plastic wrap. That obviously means that it must be very important to them. Important? They're rich. They have a whole bunch of DVDs still in the plastic wrap. I doubt that they'll miss this one. But Ella, it's against our moral code. Screw the moral code! I'm tired of our finicky VHS copy. It's time to upgrade to the golden edition. And as my angel and devil were arguing with each other, I could hear footsteps coming up the stairs to the door. And I knew I had to make a snap decision. And I heard the doorknob turning. So I quickly grabbed the golden edition of Alice in Wonderland, stuffed it in my Powerpuff Girls backpack, and pretended that nothing had happened until I got home and hid it under my pillow until I could slowly integrate it into the rest of the DVDs in my family's house. Um... Did you know that Greta Gerwig was originally a musical theater major before she got into film? And that Penny Marshall was an actor before she was a director? And that this is common for so many female directors? I mean, I know it was for me. There I was in 2015 at the Cobb County Center for Excellence in the Performing Arts. I was going to be a triple threat. I was going to make it to Broadway. And I mean, I kind of was a threat because my dancing was hazardous for the public. And I was a good singer and musician, and I'm a pretty good actor, but I always felt like I was lying when I told people I wanted to be an actress, that I was an actress. I felt like a lie to them and to myself, and I couldn't really tell why. I mean, I got no guidance or help or encouragement to be a leader or to go for leadership positions. I mean, in my senior year, I got a little bit, but I had to watch 
all of the fellow male students around me get constant encouragement and guidance from the teachers. And it made me feel like women were made for consumption, but men were made for leadership roles. Did you know that only five women have ever been nominated for Best Director at the Oscars? The first was Lena Wertmuller for Seven Beauties in 1977. Then you had Jane Campion for The Piano in 1994. Then Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation in 2004. Then we had Catherine Bigelow for Hurt Locker in 2010, the first ever win. And then the latest female nomination was in 2018, Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird. I think there's been so few nominations because women who want to make movies have to prove that they like and know and care about film just as much as everyone else. Did you guys know that I cried after I took my first film history class here at KSU? Yeah, I cried because the class was full of guys who thought that they knew so much more than the women in the class, including the professor. They would argue with her, interrupt her, try to prove her wrong, and she had to prove herself right time and time again, even though she had a PhD in film theory and history. And these were just neckbeard film bro incels who were just desperately trying to get attention so somebody would think that they were smart, which they were not. And I'm tired of people telling me that this is an issue that can simply be contained in a college classroom full of douchey dudes, but these guys are everywhere, controlling everything. And whenever I try to express how scared and worried I am about this, people just tell me, have hope, you know? Just let them do their asshole thing. Let your work stand on its own. Show them. Prove them wrong. Yeah, because that's always worked. Did you know that while there have only been five women nominated for Best Director at the Oscars, Roman Polanski, a child rapist, has been nominated for three since his arrest in 1977? He even won. They gave him a standing ovation. They gave a child rapist a standing ovation. So don't tell me that I can just ignore them and all the problems will just go away. <laughs> Still don't believe me? Let's take a look at this past Oscars, shall we? Let's start with everyone's little controversial movie, Joker, directed by Todd Phillips. The guy who directed the Hangover movies, which isn't a big deal. You can direct whatever you want to direct. But when he was asked, hey, um, would you ever consider directing more comedies? He replied with, no. Comedies are dead. Comedy's way too PC. It's dying. It's dead. I'm just going to stick with my more serious films from now on. So, Todd, let's look at your serious film, Joker which received mixed reviews from critics, which isn't a huge deal, but when Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig, receives amazing reviews from critics and audiences love the movie, how come you, Todd, were nominated for Best Director, but Greta wasn't? Let's move on to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by everyone's favorite controversial director, Quentin Tarantino. For the sake of your time, I am not going to get into the many many problematic things with this movie and instead just focus on what the critics say. And the critics, just like with Joker, gave it mixed reviews. While The Farewell 
directed by Lulu Wang, got near perfect reviews, was not mentioned at all at the Oscars. But Tarantino, of course, gets nominated. And arguing with these Joker worshippers and Tarantino worshippers is tiring and all of these asshole men. I would be lying if I didn't say that this stuff makes me want to give up sometimes. And I did. I genuinely thought about becoming a teacher because I thought I would be good at it. I would have some leadership position, no matter how unhappy it would make me, it would be something. But then we got to film those short films for Water by the Spoonful, and I got to hold a camera. I got to hold it and use it, and not just one, I got to use multiple nice, beautiful cameras, and it was one of the most happiest days of my life. And that's when I knew this is what my body was made to do, to hold a camera, to make films. As women, we are constantly taught to climb, to overcome our oppression, to constantly prove others wrong, to prove ourselves and just ignore the guy that's telling us that we suck. But we are not taught to stand. We are not taught to stand and own everything that we have done, that we can do, our talent. We are not taught to look that guy in the eye and tell him that he is wrong. But we're taught to prove that he is wrong. I'm tired of proving things. I just want to tell it how it is. I want to tell people who I am. I am a director and I don't want to be anything else. Did you know that me, Ella Height, I'm going to film school. I'm gonna be a director. Cause I am. I am a director. Next, Ira Idol looks back at his childhood with another story about accepting who you are and what you've become. This is Ira Idol with Masks. I was seven years old. We pulled up to the AMC theater and it was huge. It was like a spaceship. The theater even had a starry night sky based ceiling near the concession stand. The world's a big place when you're seven and movie theaters are especially big. I was there with my family to see The Incredibles. I was pumped. I had seen the commercials and was begging to go see it. So I sat down, saw the movie, and it was incredible. I fell in love with it. What was there not to love about a movie involving a crime-fighting family? Before I knew it, I had Incredibles everything. I had an Incredibles backpack, an Incredibles lunchbox, Incredibles bedsheets, Incredibles pajamas, Incredibles video games, and my grandparents got me the DVD of this movie as a gift, but I was so impatient in waiting for the DVD to arrive by mail that I made my mom buy it at the store so I could immediately start watching it over, and over, and over again. As most children do, I wanted to be a superhero. An incredible. I wanted my whole family to be super too. Of course, 
this wasn't possible, though my parents, always being supportive of my passions, found the next best thing. At a party city, they found Incredibles masks made of cardboards, meant to be worn only once at birthday parties. They brought these masks home, and it was love at first sight. I finally felt special! I latched onto the Supers from the Incredibles as an alter ego, something I aspired to be. I am autistic, and I was visibly different to my peers from the way I acted. Something autistic people do a lot is a behavior known as masking, or we pretend to be as non-autistic as possible to please the non-autistic people around us. I was masking both literally and figuratively here. My parents struck a deal with me, though. I could wear these masks anytime except for during the school day. I signed the invisible contract and obliged. For a while, I felt great wearing this mask. I felt strong like Bob, fast like Dash, flexible like Helen, and the negative aspects of my personality felt invisible like Violet. And ultimately, I was innocent like Jack-Jack. One day, I rode the bus home and stopped at the upper elementary school to pick up the 4th and 5th graders. A bus full of 5th graders rolled by me, with everyone noticing and pointing at me. They're laughing. Were these people laughing with or at me? I didn't care. I was there for the attention. A few months passed. I had finished kindergarten, and it was summertime. Everyone around me was starting to get tired of the mask face. People started making fun of me again, saying things like, You're still wearing an Incredibles mask? What are you going to do? Lift a tree and throw it? I don't know, maybe. I would if I could. I visited my aunt for Memorial Day weekend, and we had a thing where she would take me to the Disney store. Being my aunt, she started taunting me about the masks. I started getting scratches around my eyes from wearing these cheaply made masks so often, and she told me, if you want to go to the Disney store, you'll need to hide your secret identity. But this was the Disney store of all places. They would have loved my fanaticism for their own products. She then said, if you keep wearing that mask, you'll turn into a raccoon. I took a look at her, thought about it for a second, and decided to let her hold on to it while at the store. As my parents kept purchasing more and more masks at Party City, they were running out of stock. Because these were promotional material for the movie, they weren't, running, uh, they weren't restocking them. My parents figured one of two things would happen. I would either get bored and stop wearing my masks, or I would break my last mask, throw fit, and then move on with my life. Summer camp was in session. I attended a day camp. We had the same rule about the mask that we did in school. I ran around the playground, slid down some slides, went to the pool later in the afternoon with my fellow campers. Then mom eventually arrived to take me home with a mask in hand. I looked at it and decided, no thanks, I've had enough. Though I had moved on from wearing my Incredibles masks, the guilt I felt from wearing them weighed heavy on me. Every time I thought about the Incredibles or someone would remind me of when I wore the masks, I'd tell them, nope, shut up, we don't talk about that. The Incredibles had gone from being my hero to my arch nemesis. I had gone from wearing a literal mask to a figurative one. 
A lot of the Incredibles merchandise I had acquired still hung around the house for years to come as grim reminders of my past transgressions. One day when I was 13, my sisters were watching The Incredibles on the same DVD from so long ago. They urged me, come on, Ira, let's watch The Incredibles together. You used to love that movie. I resisted, still feeling the embarrassment from years past. But I caved in when I saw the family dinner scene and laughed. I watched it and rediscovered how incredible this movie was. I felt silly for giving it a cold shoulder for so long, but I'd now forgiven little Ira. Little me and bigger me embraced each other for once. Bigger me held little Ira tight and said, It's okay. You are incredible just the way you are. We both are. One of the stranger parts about the pandemic that has moved our showcase from live and in person to this podcast is that we've all had a little more time to spend with ourselves, which can be tricky. A lot of people are scared to tell stories about themselves in front of others. Those people will probably tell you that they're scared, that the audience will judge them, and I think that fear is something some people have. But also, I think that folks intuitively know that telling stories about yourself on stage is a vulnerable moment because it's not only a confrontation with the audience, but a confrontation with yourself. The stories in this episode are all great examples of the way storytelling can require us to look inside ourselves and be honest about what's really there. Here, Kylie Talbot gets real about disappointment and discovery in her story, Kylie's Crisis. And crisis is spelled with a K. I think she'd want me to mention that. A glow-in-the-dark Shrek watch was the perfect defining object of what love meant. I could feel the power coursing through my veins as it slipped on my frail wrist like a glove three times the size of what I'm used to. I mean, I was two. How else was I supposed to accept such a gift? Preschool! My boyfriend at the time, Cannon, gave it to me, and in that exact moment, I felt the entire concept of romance being invented by our hands. Romance simply did not exist before Cannon and I. Are you kidding? I literally had an object that glowed in the dark. That was just a metaphor for how our love glowed through everything. I was so excited that I turned off the class lights in the middle of the day and my teachers were like, oh, Kylie, maybe let's not do that. But I had to. Our love glowed. I remember Cannon and his big brown eyes telling me, Kylie, you're the only girl in the world that has this. And I believed him. Hell yeah, I was. It wasn't until a few days later where the neighborhood kids and I were playing a good round of cul-de-sac war when I realized my other female neighbor had the same exact watch on. Well, that's when I knew that men should never be trusted. Middle school! I was as gremlin-like as you could ever imagine. But if you know me and my jaw structure, you may be confused. Like, I, I genuinely hate sounding like this, but I oh my god, yes, I guess I am pretty attractive now. People look at me and they're like, Kylie, you were never ugly. Okay, well, you don't know the trauma, first of all. <laughs> the funny thing about middle school is that everyone looked like gremlins. Puberty was really hitting us with the wrong things. You know, I personally believe I was even more of a gremlin because I would sit in the corner with Pokemon cards and draw dumb anime characters that I was inspired by. I still do that 
by the way, to this day in 2020. I I just look better while doing it. It was common practice for boys in my grade to ask me out as a dare. You know, the boys who peaked in middle school and are probably dealing with their fourth instance of cheating on their spouse. Yeah, them. They targeted me, the staple nerd girl. (sighs) Watch this. Hey, uh, Kylie? Every time one of their sausage fingers touched my shoulder, I just knew. Wanna go out with me? Of course, before I could ever open my mouth to respond, a cacophony of skin-crawling, voice-cracking laughter took over, and I was just labeled as a joke. I guess I kind of rolled with it for a while. Didn't feel too great, but I thought that was a part of growing up. High school! I experienced love for the first time. It hit me hard. I had tunnel vision for this one guy, and, you know, it made me so hopeful because we were already very good friends. I I swear to God, there would always be instances where we would just about dive over the cliff and fall into a a relationship with each other, but... The fear of ruining the friendship always got in the way. And so did other girls. We had a class trip to Disney World, and it was my birthday. So I asked him, the boy in question, and a few others to come with me to the Tortuga Tavern in Adventureland to have a sort of fun little birthday dinner with me, you know? Shovel down some two meaty hot dogs that were entirely too long for high school students to consume, but whatever. I was pumped to be celebrated in Disney World, the happiest place on Earth. No one showed. Jack Sparrow did, briefly, and he went, Oh, it's your birthday, innit? Happy birthday then, love. It's a black pearl. And I guess him saying happy birthday to me was enough male validation, but I really felt completely and utterly alone. I mean, the only other thing I had with me was the entirely too greasy hot dog that was... Too much for any high school kid to handle. And my boy friend, the boy that was a friend, his girlfriend at the time knew of my birthday dinner and whisked him away to take romantic pictures in front of the castle at the same exact time as the dinner. The pictures weren't even that cute. But at that point, I didn't even care anymore about love. It was just the fact that my male best friend was not really in my life anymore. Then I realized I was never destined to have any sort of relationship with a man, platonic or romantic. College! Oh, drum roll everybody. I finally got a boyfriend. Except, well, pro tip, never date someone just because they say they like you, okay? I was 20 and had never been in a relationship before. So when he came to me with a I have more than platonic feelings for you. I leapt at the opportunity. It was my dumbest mistake to date, but I leapt. And then I was tossed into the most cruel mind games. Like, okay, imagine going to a college Halloween party with your boyfriend, and then him spending the entire night talking to a girl he was seeing only a year prior. And then when you bring it up to him in the car after the party, he tells you, well, her boyfriend is uncomfortable with it too. Or, or, ooh, here's a good one. Imagine you feel so neglected that you tell him you feel like he's embarrassed to be around you in public, but he only responds with, oh, okay. And then you're dumped. 
and within two days your suspicions of there being another girl the entire time were confirmed, and you were just left feeling stupid. Stupid. Stupid for even giving any amount of your vulnerability to someone who used it as some sort of fucked up currency. Use vulnerability points to get more things his way, cutting you out to be even more villainized than what the truth was displaying. I had never felt more worthless than I did then. <laughs> All of my past male failures finally caught up with me as I was left on my own bed, crying the party makeup I had spent over an hour on, break up fresh on the skin. Man, I would love to go back in time to smack Kylie around a little. I was basing my entire value on how much ma male validation I got. How stupid was that? The numbed silence after the breakup really made me think about who I was, as dramatic as it sounds. Like, oh, who am I? Uh, breakups. Yeah, anyways. These thoughts even took me all the way back to my childhood, where I reminisced on characters that I was in love with, you know, just to see if there were any similarities between them and the men who have wronged me. You had Danny Phantom, Aladdin, Flynn Rider, Will Turner... Elizabeth Swan, Marceline the Vampire Queen, Shigo. Wait, 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 pause, pause, pause. I was so starved for male validation that I had unknowingly erased an entire portion of my identity. I liked men, okay. But women! Women were right there! They have always been right there! Always! With Cannon's Shrek watch betrayal, there was Molly, who always complimented my bangs, no matter the day. And then with the prepubescent cackling, there was always the girl who held my hand over the lunch table as we excitedly chattered about anime. And with the torturous collegiate mind games, there was always a collection of women that I could exist with, that I could be close to and not feel strangled by, that I... I craved feelings from just just human connection with someone bisexuality is a scary thing to grasp honestly you have to tailor yourself to be the perfect 50 50 or else you'll be deemed as either selfish or faking it and because i was so zeroed in on men for so long because to society it was so right it birthed a sense of internalized biphobia within me I was disgusted with myself, so naturally I blocked that part out. I felt like I was up against the wall and I had no other move to play on this game. Oh, to smack the lights out on Kylie from the past. So, yeah, there is nothing wrong with me because I don't get a lot of, of attention from the male species, but, you know, because of women, I was able to accept myself, feel worthy, and laugh more than I've ever laughed at a man's joke. And they say women aren't funny. Well, explain that one, Harvard graduates. Tell me why I'm cackling every time a lady breathes in my direction. There's no warmth like the warmth you feel curled up next to a woman. And I will not take constructive criticism on this opinion. It's like being a cat lying on the rug where spots of sunlight are sprouting through the curtains. And that's the kind of warmth I like. I appreciate it. And you know... No big deal, but uh, women appreciate me. So, for now, I'm vibing. I don't need a Shrek watch that glows to make me feel radiant. Just a warm smile from a woman. Finally, 
Chandler Sheeran's story forces a confrontation with the limits of what you'll accept and the consequences of your actions. This is Chandler Sheeran and Dude Had It Coming. I was walking down the road with one thing on my mind. This dude has got it coming. The year is 2013. I had just gotten a brand new cell phone. This one had a touchscreen and a keypad. As the phone cut on, the LED screen lit up. Do-do-do? A text message already? As I unlocked the phone, the text appeared. You are a little bitch. I read it once more for brevity. Someone had called me, not a little Sebastian, not a little Bow Wow, but a little bitch. I won't lie, it struck a chord in my heart. But being a firm believer of the strenuous life, I decided to investigate. Come to find out, the text had come from my arch nemesis, Noah Petty. Yes, it's a bit on the nose, I know. You see, Noah and I had beef going back to elementary school. Once, I ran for class president and he ripped my sign off the wall. Another time, I was driving this old 1995 Jeep Wrangler. It was a stick shift, it had a rusted out floor, no locks, and it wouldn't go faster than 55 miles an hour on the highway. Anyways, once, Noah put a fish in my trunk and I didn't find it for a week. The guy terrorized me and I had finally had enough. After telling my parents what had happened, my dad thought it would be a good idea to invite Noah over to the house to fight him. It'll be over before the weekend is. My old man always taught me to stand up for myself, so I told Noah to come on over and get this ass whooping, to which he responded by claiming that I'd call the cops on him. The only thing I'm going to call is an ambulance to pick your ass off the ground once I'm finished with you. Still, he would not come over. So I made an executive decision. I asked my parents to drive me over to Noah's house. As we got closer, I realized I'd look like a punk if I rolled up in my parents' car. So I hopped out on foot right before we got there. As I walked down the road, I had one thing on my mind. This dude has got it coming. As I approached the front door, I had a glorious picture in my head. I would ring the doorbell. Noah would answer. I'd clock him straight away and be home before supper. Psyching myself up, I approached the door. Come on, man, you got this. You're not a little bitch. This guy's got nothing on you, man. He's a little bitch. The door swings open, and it's none other than Noah's dad, Richard Petty. No relation. Uh, uh, hi, uh, Mr. Richard. Is, uh, is Noah home? At this point, Noah's mom comes out, screaming at the top of her lungs. You need to get off our property before I call the police. Then two of Noah's senior goons come walking out. At this point... I'm thinking I've made a terrible executive decision when out of nowhere, Noah Petty comes bolting out of his house. As he ran towards me, he pulled a move I've only heard about in legend. He started taking his shirt off, which really threw me off. What happened next was something like the Matrix. Noah swings at me with his right hand. I dodge to the left. He follows up with a left hook that narrowly misses my cheek. Well, if that's how it's going to be, I thought to myself. I used my momentum against him and landed a crunching jab to his nose, which knocked him back into the garage door of his house. Once I got on top of him, there was no turning back. I'm not even thinking anymore, just seeing red and unleashing six years of frustration on this guy. At this point, my parents have rolled up, and my dad is explaining to Noah's dad why we are here. Complete with text evidence, all the while I'm wailing on this kid ten feet away from them. At some point, my dad pulled me off of Noah and we went home. The next day at school, Noah showed up with a purple nose and a busted lip. He claimed that he had accidentally kicked himself while on a trampoline. Okay, bro. The thing is, one of those senior goons that he had brought with him had filmed the whole thing. The 
only way I found out about it was on the bus that afternoon when my buddy showed me. Dude, look at this shit. I can't believe you did all that. The more I started to think about it, the more I really started feeling like a jackass for what I had done. After a week of sitting on it, I decided to go over to Noah's house to work things out. I was walking down the road with one thing on my mind. Let's work it out. Viva La Tellers is a non-for-profit educational podcast supported by the Department of Theater and Performance Studies at Kennesaw State University. To find out more about the Department of Theater and Performance Studies, visit our website at kennesaw.edu and like The Tellers on Facebook. All stories in this episode are the intellectual property of the storyteller. Tyler Un wrote and performed our theme music. This episode was written and produced by me, Dr. Charles Parrott. This has been Viva La Tellers. <laughs>